0: to my mommy's podcast
1: this podcast is brought to you by kettle and fire You may already know that this is my go-to bone broth because it is shelf-stable, it's easy to use, and it's delicious. But you may not know that Kettle and Fire just released brand new bone broth-based soups, which make it even more convenient to eat healthy on the go. Plus, they save a lot of time when you're trying to feed the whole family on a busy night, and they are delicious. They have miso, tomato, and butternut, and they're all really, really good. Plus, they have a 20-hour slow simmer process for their broth that extracts an insane amount of protein. 10 grams per serving and this creates a collagen rich broth that is great for hair and skin and nails. My favorite part is it only takes a minute to heat up any of these broths or soup on the stove and I can keep a case in my pantry so it's there anytime I need it. Right now you can save 10% by going to kettleandfire.com forward slash mama The discount is already built in so just remember that link kettleandfire.com forward slash mama this episode is brought to you by mother dirt did you know that there's a microbiome on your skin or at least there should be as the body's largest organ our skin is also the body's largest ecosystem and many modern products interfere with or deplete the natural beneficial bacteria that should be there so how do we get it back Mother Dirt's AO Plus Mist restores the good bacteria that once existed on our skin naturally, but that modern hygiene practices have wiped away. Think of it as a probiotic and prebiotic for your skin. I've been using it for years and it is a vital part of my skincare routine. In fact, 60% of Mother Dirt AO Mist users are able to stop using deodorant altogether because the patented AOB consumes the ammonia and sweat. And 60%, 66% of users find that they can take shorter showers and cut out an average of 2.5 products from their routine. You can save 20% by going to motherdirt.com forward slash wellnessmama and using the code free ship 20 again, motherdirt.com forward slash wellnessmama and the code free ship 20 all caps to save 20%. Hello, and welcome to the wellness Mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnesslama.com, and this episode is going to answer all of the questions I've been getting from you guys about the keto diet, because I am here with Dr. Anthony Gustin, who's a board-certified sports physician, a functional medicine practitioner, and an overall food and fitness skeptic like I am. His focus recently has shifted from private practice to creating products that he improved the accessibility of whole food nutrition and ketosis with his company's Perfect Keto and Equip. And in addition to publishing his own health reports on his website, he has DrAnthonyGustin.com that will be linked in the show notes. And we're going to jump into everything keto today. So Dr. Gustin, welcome and thanks for being here.
0: Katie, thank you for having me.
1: Like I said, this is obviously a popular topic right now. I know so many people, even just neighbors and friends who are trying out the keto diet and it's super popular right now. So I'd love to hear first and foremost, um, why do you think we're seeing such a rise in the popularity of the keto diet?
0: Yeah, it's hot right now, isn't it? It's it's, it's pretty crazy. Uh, And we've seen that in our business too. And just kind of the the information we're trying to put out is we we can't keep up, even though we post like five to seven articles a week. People seem to want to know more and more and more. Uh, I think that one of the biggest things is that it's just people are getting results with it, and so whenever you get results, um, I think something like this that can become kind of trendworthy. Just like when paleo started to hit, you know, five eight years ago, you saw a lot of people clamoring towards it because it was working so well. And I think that we're seeing a lot of the same thing in the ketogenic diet as well. People are getting results, whether that be from weight loss, from mental performance, from physical performance, from treating chronic diseases, all the, the whole spectrum, people are, are really getting a lot of awesome results. So I think that that's kind of what's driving it forward so rapidly right now.
1: Got it. I also feel like there, is, there are probably like 100 different versions of the keto diet online, depending on who you ask and whose who's people are following. So I'd love if we could start with the very basics. First of all, what actually is a keto diet? Is it measurable? And then also, what does that look like as far as the food you're actually eating? Because I know some people take it to mean a bacon and cheese diet, which I have some concerns about. So I'd love to hear your take.
0: Yeah. And this this is one of the biggest grips that I have with the ketogenic diet is that, you know, in a paleo diet, we set a lot of great parameters about what to eat. And um, in a a keto diet, we kind of set a lot of parameters on, on how much to eat. And so people really focus on macronutrients. And so to be in a state of ketosis, which is essentially just using your own body fat or dietary fat as fuel source instead of carbohydrates, you need to restrict carbohydrates, first of all, and then moderate to, to medium amounts of protein, and then fat to kind of fill in the rest to, to fill in the void of energy um, that your body needs to, to function at a basic level. And so from restricting carbohydrates, a lot of people start measuring macronutrients. And when, when people start measuring just macronutrients, they kind of forget about the, the whole food at first and then a ketogenic diet second. And so uh, I think that food quality is very, very important. And I think that the, the main mistake that a lot of people make is that they, they try to do a diet like this just to raise their ketone levels. But just raising your ketone levels, unless you have some chronic illness, like you know, maybe cancer or um, seizures or things like that, the ketone levels really don't matter that much. And so the levels of ketones are, are measured either in the urine or the breath or the blood, basically saying that this is, how many ketones are floating around and available for use. It doesn't say how much are being used in your cells. And, and then when we start measuring that, we, we try to think that more is better and that's not always the case. And so I think that just, just thinking about you know, from a fundamental level, what is your goal for nutrition? I think that a lot of nutrition, when you dial it down into after whole foods, you know, whether it be a ketogenic diet or a carnivore diet or gluten-free or vegan or whatever, I think that you're looking at how to use nutrition as a tool to get a job done. And keto- ketosis is just one of those things. More ketones doesn't necessarily mean better. And I think that that's one of the things that, that people should be aware of here.
1: Do you feel like keto is another fad diet, at least the way it's done currently? Or do you feel like it's rooted in history and it's something we're coming back to kind of like the idea behind the paleo diet?
0: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think that it has not been in popularity from, from anybody who's pretty much alive right now due to a lot of the demonization of fat, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago. And I think that it is now going to be accepted as we move this trend um, forward. Not necessarily keto as a name. I don't, I don't know or really even care if that is something that resonates in 10 years from now. What I care about is that people start embracing fat as a healthy component of nutrition. And so um, this is something where I think that we, we just we missed out for the last, like I said, 40, 50, 60 years on fat. And it's just an, it's an essential macronutrient. And so when you, when you do break down things like protein, fat, and carbohydrate, I mean, we can look at those very essentially. Protein is for sure needed. Fat is for sure needed. And carbohydrates are are just not needed. And if you're looking at essential macronutrients for human health and and just for performance and and everything that you need as a human. And so I think that when we restrict fat for so long and add the carbohydrates in, we we see a lot of the problems that we do see right now. Um, I don't think carbohydrates are evil. I don't think they should be avoided at all costs. But I think that for sure minimizing a lot of them and starting to o- incorporate some healthy fat back in the diet is a really good move. And I think that we're going to see this, this massive macro shift from this low fat um, diet wow. that we've been fed for the last few decades back to a more normal, what we've had for, for throughout human history is just a super high fat or at least moderate fat diet that um, pushes things forward. I mean, if you look at a fat, for example, makes up a lot of our hormones, it makes up most nerve um, in the nervous system it makes up all cell and cell lining so like it, it is an essential thing that we need to thrive as a human being so having an adequate amounts is super important
1: you're right and we saw such a policy for so long that demonized fat and this was coming out of even governmental regulations. my listeners are pretty educated so they probably already have a pretty good idea of why that policy we're now seeing such big problems with it but for anybody who's not as familiar with that, can you kind of give us the high level of what's changed and why we now understand that fat is not the enemy and why they used to think it was the enemy?
0: Yeah. I mean, anyone who wants a deeper dive into this, I would recommend Nina Teicholz's book, The Big Fat Surprise. She does the best job of anybody else that I've seen digging into all the details about, you know, why we demonize fat in general, um, how we got through this whole thing and where we're at today. And she's doing a lot of great work as far as trying to get the standards in in the, the governmental recommendations for food change. So it is a moderate to high fat diet. Um, but really, again, if you look at it, it's, it, it kind of stems like, like most awful things from, from one kind of phase shift in, in the industry of, of government recommendations. And this came from, um, Ansel Keys who did a study trying to show that saturated fat causes heart disease and cholesterol is an enemy and all this different stuff. And so packaging it up and saying that these things are bad for heart disease. we, we you know, we had a lot of different things happen at that point. The president had a heart attack. We, we were trying to answer that really quick. We wanted an answer as far as what to eat. There was a lot of changes in the food system. And so we kind of had this perfect storm for recommending a low-fat diet. When that happened, a lot of things changed. And so if you look at the data around incidence of diabetes, incidence of heart disease, incidence of obesity, so on and so forth, all that stuff spiked essentially when we went to a low-fat recommendation. And Nina does a really great job of explaining, you know, in all the information that she puts out that generally American population does a really, really good job at shifting to what is expected from them from the government. And so we follow recommendations. And so when the government says, stop eating fat, eat low fat, stop eating meat, meat causes cancer, we do these things across the board. The, the, the really bad part here is that these things actually promote a lot, a lot of deficiencies in the diet and a lot of problems moving forward. And so what's happened is that we've now gone a bunch of decades with a lot of these health problems looming and a lot of questions as far as how do we really solve this and what is going on with human health. I tend to think that it usually comes back to nutrition. And so a lot of people who are smarter than me who are doing a lot of research in this have shown that r- limiting fat and increasing carbohydrates is a crux of some of these problems. You know, So we're looking at heart disease, we're looking at inflammation, diabetes, autoimmunity, you know, obesity. A lot of these are tied back to overconsumption of, of simple carbohydrates, not getting enough fat. Obviously, a really inflammatory diet is not great. So again, going back to what I was saying earlier about having real food is super important. Um, and, and Gary Tobbs is another one who does a lot of work in this and, and he kind of, as, as neat as a champion for fat, he's, he's kind of the, the guy who is talking about what is bad with carbohydrate. And so they kind of paint a, a complementary picture to, to one another. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a, it's a crazy thing. And the, the fact that, like I said, anyone alive today, you know, just accepts that fat, you know, if you, if you're over the age of 20, 25 is unhealthy, you know, meat is unhealthy. And anyone before the you know, anyone older than fifty, sixty, seventy, or or beyond that, anyone who you know who would have be a hundred plus today would think that's insane and in that you know cooking with animal fat and, and eating animal products is just a normal day and a necessity as far as nutrition goes. And so we have come a, a a long way in, in the last 30, 40, 50 years. And and I think that switching it over and seeing magazines like Time go from demonizing fat to now accepting it and Yeah, I mean, it's a a fascinating thing how how fast things can switch over the course of human history and, and kind of where we're at now, kind of accepting these things as ancestral norms and getting them back into our diet now.
1: Yeah, and some of the weird things that came with it, like when everybody got rid of butter and adopted margarine, which is this chemically created, essentially plasticized fat that the body has no idea what to do with instead of butter or animal fat for cooking, um, or even olive oil. There are so many better options, and that was a thing that stuck around for a long time, and I feel like people are now starting to get that there's a problem with it. Um, But you, I feel like, are in a sense kind of a rare unicorn because you're a board-certified physician, but you also understand functional medicine, and you also understand nutrition. So just to make sure we're clear, from what you're saying as a doctor and as someone who understands nutrition, that fat does not cause cardiovascular disease. Is that your understanding?
0: right there's just no evidence that points to that and usually with people that i've seen and and of course it's a very multifactorial thing that one uh, again the the biggest thing that i see is that people when they eat real food they normalize a lot of stuff but you know low fat versus high fat there's not even comparison people who who limit fat you know you know they've they've shown this in research that it's just things do not go well for people who limit fat over the long term and yeah, it is something that, that demonizing over the, like, I don't think that everybody needs to be on a ketogenic diet. I think it's a useful tool like I was mentioning before, but I think that, you know, eliminating it entirely from the diet is a really bad move.
1: Yeah, exactly. Okay. So I want to get back to in a minute, the keto diet and go deeper on that. But first, because you mentioned protein and you mentioned the carnivore diet, I have to get your take on this because I know this is another one that's come on the scene that's getting a lot more popular and I'm getting questions about in my background in nutrition and also just being a woman. I definitely have some concerns when I hear of women doing a carnivore diet, but I'm really curious your take on it. And um, yeah, just any advice you have there.
0: Yeah, I was concerned about it for a while too when I was looking into it. And I saw, again, just like with a ketogenic diet, a lot of people were getting results with it. And so when you look at positive anecdotes, overwhelming amount of them saying that keto didn't work for me, paleo didn't work for me, you know, uh, autoimmune. Did, diet didn't work for me, but this, the carnivore diet worked for me above all else. And I just saw it cropping up over and over and over again. I was a little skeptical as I, as I tried to be um, when it comes to that. When I, I don't like to deny or recommend anything without doing it myself. So I did five and a half weeks of a carnivore diet myself just to see how it was and looked into it and researched it and kind of dug really, really deep into the topic. And I was shocked to find that there wasn't really anything that kind of contra indicated the the need for vegetables or the limits on meat. And I felt pretty incredible when I did my experiment. Now I don't think that and I don't want to say that vegetables are should be shunned entirely. I don't think that, you know, for some people it might make sense. And I think there's a s- several reasons why the normal person that, that is not a great idea. We can dig into that a little bit further if you want. But um, I'm curious actually as far as why you think for women in general or just what your take is on why it would not be beneficial. I, I want to poke holes in it. so I just, I just want to discuss, you know, where people are coming from and, and why they think that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, for me, just mainly coming from the, I've read a lot of research and have l- really delved into the microbiome lately. And I have concerns whenever any, uh, like you mentioned, there are not, there's not a need for carbohydrates necessarily, but there is a need for biodiversity in the gut and different bacteria in the gut react differently to bacteria and prebiotic fiber that comes in. So my concern with the carnivore diet is you are essentially removing all of the prebiotic fiber that could potentially come in. Um, And I wonder about long-term effects if we're going to see reduction in the diversity in the gut or potentially like changes in enzymes or things that we need for digestion. Is that something that you've run into at all or that you would be concerned about?
0: Yeah. So I chat a lot with uh, Michael Ruscio, Dr. Michael Ruscio on this topic, who is one of my um, go-to guys about gut health. And I mean, we shout a lot about gut health in general. So gut problems, what happens is generally the the treatment protocol is to remove all fiber and not add more fiber in. And so that's one of the reasons why I think short-term carnivore diet works so well for people is that it's essentially a gut reset program. And so you're removing all fiber and you're correcting a lot of imbalances or overgrowth of bacteria that you have in your gut. And so I think that a lot of people, yes, we have these ideals that biodiversity in the gut is good and all these different things. but we we really do not know anything about the gut where we're at right now. We're still naming species, and we're still in a, in a phase where we just generally don't know that much. We we know some stuff might be good. We don't know in what proportion. We know what for for what population. And so, there's something where I think that we we kind of put the cart ahead of the horse, and we we don't really know what we're talking about yet. And this is. You know, Dr. Riccio is the same way. He knows how to deal with what he sees. He's again the the person that I think has read the most research about this than anything. He just had a book come out that is phenomenal dealing with this stuff. And uh, yeah, yeah, I think that fiber generally, and this might be controversial, but is a little overrated. And I think that you actually can get a lot of stuff from animal parts. So there's things called proteoglycans in cartilage and in skin that your body can actually use as prebiotic and uh, probiotic fibers, And so that's something too that that can be incorporated into the, to, to see what the microbiome, how it handles it. I've, I've just seen so many reports, people long-term, two, two three five ten 10 years on this type of diet, clear up digestive problems, clear up any kind of gut problems and actually thrive on this long-term that, you know, it's not that I think that, again, it's hundred percent necessary. It's just, you have to ask the question of is, is fiber really necessary to the degree that we think it is? And is do we really know enough about the gut microbiome to say, you know, plants are the only ways to get this type of fiber and the only way to balance a gut microbiome. I mean, we, we've studied in the way we get the conclusion that, you know, more diversity is good or better is from people generally eating a standard American diet and not really even paleo diet, let alone ketogenic diet or carnivore diet. So gut microbiome for somebody who eats only meat maybe they need less because a lot of the meat actually gets absorbed in the small intestine. You have no need for it in the large intestine anymore. And so, yes, there are a lot of studies showing that you need microbiome diversity for regulation of mood and regulation of hunger and all these different hormones and all that stuff like that. But, I mean, the most important thing is that you have high mucosal integrity and high amount of bacteria on top of that mucosa in the gut. And I think what happens is a lot of times when people overeat fiber, they actually... And over-inflammatory foods, especially, is that they start breaking down that that mucosal layer and getting into the gap lining of the actual gut and breaking that down, and more things get into your bloodstream than than needs to be. So, I mean, I think it's a it's a much bigger story than just you know eat more fiber. More fiber equals more gut bacteria. That and more gut bacteria equals more health. And so, I think it's a it's a way more complicated picture than we have to paint. And I think that we're not even close to answering that question yet. So again, I remain skeptical. I don't really know the answer. I don't think anybody has the the data to know the answer, but I think we're really getting ahead of ourselves as far as gut health goes.
1: Interesting. Yeah. some great points. And I think you're right. We're only starting to barely touch the tip of the iceberg when it comes to gut health. And I'm really excited for what the next few decades hopefully will hold for research. Um, but I am curious. So as a follow-up to that, A, what about people who do this for an extended period of time and then do eventually reintroduce vegetables, do you think there's um, they could potentially lose the ability to digest that correctly? And also, um, I totally agree with you as far as I don't think we need refined carbohydrates and certainly not sugar and that most of these things are overconsumed, but it seems like even looking at the keto diet or the paleo diet especially, there is a, a strong uh, historical prevalence of people eating vegetables, usually green vegetables and small amounts and like a a large diversity of that, and both for the micronutrients. And then obviously, that is a type of fiber as well. So I'm curious your take on those. um, Because like you said, it's a controversial topic, but I'm excited to go deep on this.
0: Okay, so can you break those questions down for me just kind of one, one by one so we can tackle them?
1: Yeah. So the first one, let's just tackle, do you think someone who's done the carnivore diet, for instance, long term, will have trouble reintroducing vegetables at some point if they decide to?
0: So just like with any type of nutrition, if you eliminate something entirely, which again, I'm not advocating for, and I don't say that this is the best way to go about nutrition. I think, again, carnivore diet might be a tool for some people for some reasons. And so that's, that's why I think it may be helpful. I'm not saying that everybody should be doing this. But even when you switch to a ketogenic diet for the first time, um, you have certain receptors in your cells that use fats in a certain way and control them into mitochondria that have basically been unused for your entire life. That start getting turned on and that might take four to eight weeks to start using ketones as energy and so the, the same thing goes with, with all food and so if you eliminate carbohydrates entirely and you eliminate all fiber entirely and you, even if you eat, eliminate meat entirely so if you eliminate meat for a long period of time your body stops producing certain acids in your stomach that help break down the meat and so your body doesn't want to waste energy dealing with stuff that it doesn't deal with and so if you do that yeah yes, you, you might have a transit uh, transition period where adding stuff back in, you might need to take it a little slow, but you, it's not like your body loses the ability long term or forever to be able to process these foods and use them as an energy source. Your body is very adaptable and it's not like it's going to just completely forget and have an amnesia permanently about how to handle certain foods. So I don't think that this is a relevant concern. I think with anything, when you go extreme, your body adapts to to extreme and it has to then adapt to moderation over a long period of time as well. And I think that you see this in energy systems, you see this in food choices, you see this across the board. So it's not something that I'm worried about. Can it happen? Yes, but I think that, that it's less of a concern that people make it out to be.
1: Interesting. Definitely got it. And I, I know for me and my side of research, I've come around, especially in the last couple of years, to the idea that th- there's obviously so many different dietary ideas and systems people use. And to some degree, I wonder if like, what if we're all right, at least a little bit? Like, what if all of these things have their time and their place, but it's finding out for all of us, the thing that actually is going to work for us. And like you said, there's genetic components, there's personalization here. So no one recommendation is going to work for everyone. Um, but back to the earlier point on on vegetables, we do know just anthropologically, there is a really long history of humans eating greens or different kinds of vegetables that were found in nature and easy to forage. So I'm curious your take on those within the paradigm of a keto diet or a paleo diet.
0: Oh, yeah. And and this is, again, so your question on variants, I think you, you asked a little bit about that as well. Like, we had a lot of variants. Why would we skip out on that? I totally agree with that point. I think that a lot of human nutrition and just human life in general um people become healthier with variants. And so if anybody is curious more about this subject, I would um, read Nassim Taleb's anti to kind of dive really deep into the book about randomness. But I think that incorporating randomness is the most important thing. And so that's why, you know, when people look at fasting, for example, intermittent fasting every single day for eight years, all right, yeah, it might not be a good idea, especially for women. Um, if they look at about being vegan only for 10 years, probably not great. If they look at being a carnivore, or long term, maybe we'll find this as well. I don't think that humans ever had a time where they were able to have the same amount of nutrition day in and day out for years and years and years at a time. I think that mixing that up is a really good thing. And then that comes to fasting, that comes to food choice, that becomes to macronutrient ratios that comes to metabolic flexibility, the whole spectrum. And I think that that includes having meat, but also having vegetables as well. And so when, when we look at kind of what vegetables are and how they provide nutrition to the body, it's less, that, it prov- that the vegetables in plants in general provide micronutrition or vitamins and minerals. Meat, hands down, if you look at any kind of nutrition chart, wins that hands down, whether that be organ meats is obviously at the top of that spectrum. And then kind of second to that is just, just animal meat. And then way below that are spices and herbs. And below that are vegetables, for example. However, what they do provide that meat does not is a lot of hermetic stressors. And so, for instance, everybody knows, like, just to give an example, turmeric, great, great, great anti-inflammatory. It's because turmeric is a little bit of a stress to the body. So the body has to react to that in increasing a lot of immune system reaction. So that way your body, you know, if it comes into more turmeric later, it does not become overwhelmed by it. And so the same thing, but if you go out and do a bunch of squats and you become sore on it, that's a stressor. You're not adding to your body. Your your body freaks out. It does not want to have that stress again. So it makes you stronger. Plants work a lot in the same way. And that's why I don't think that anybody removing plants um, has it figured out totally. That's that's like saying that, you know, workouts make me sore and I can get overtrained by running eight marathons a day. Therefore, I'm never going to move again. We still want a lot of stress with movement. We still want your body to move. We still want a lot of that baseline. I think that vegetables and plants in general provide a lot of the same thing. And so, if you look at books like, you know, Plant Paradox and all like people talking about, you know, plant toxins and all this stuff again, w- we don't want to put that in a bucket and go so extreme to say that you should never have that stuff. We should look at it and say like, okay, what is the utility of that? And I think that just like working out, we, we having a stressor for it and adapting to it is a really, really good thing. Does it make sense to eat 15 salads a day? Probably not. If, if we're getting those stressors on a cellular level over and over and over again, probably not a great idea. Do I think it'd be good to eliminate entirely over the long term? I do not think so. I think that what you mentioned about variability and randomness is 100% how humans have probably adapted over the last couple million years and probably how they should be approaching nutrition for the next couple million years, if that makes any sense. That was kind of a long ramble.
1: That's such a good explanation. And I think think you're so right. To me, what both history and current scientific data really back up is the idea that we do need like you said, a ton of variation and different stressors at different times. And if you want to look at just history alone, people didn't always have the ability to eat all the time. So sometimes they had to fast by default. They certainly weren't eating strawberries in the middle of winter and, you know, they weren't eating necessarily potatoes in the middle of summer. They only could eat what was available at certain times. And now we do have complete availability of every food and every macronutrient at all times, but that isn't what we've Historically, had the ability to do so. I'm curious, um, since we touched on it a little bit, and you mentioned intermittent fasting. I'd love to get your take on fasting, both intermittent fasting and then water fasting, and some of the other types of more extreme fasting.
0: Yeah, so this is another thing that people don't realize that that fasting is a stress. And so, if you're somebody who goes to work and you're running out the door and you're grabbing lunch, and you maybe not eating the day, and you're stressed about bills, and your kids are yelling at you, and and all this different stuff, and then you go run to the gym afterwards and do a stressful crossfit workout and then rush home and, and then have no time before you go to bed, You should probably not be doing fasting. <laughs> and I don't think anybody talks about this. I think that f- minimizing allostatic stress load is the overall stress component that a human has to deal with. If your other stress units are high, I think it is a very, very good idea. And so for, for example, for me very personally, in the beginning of the year, I moved from one city to split time between two. I basically, my, my roles and my my company are changing rapidly. I was the company was growing like crazy. I was hiring stuff. Um, I had a lot of personal things going on. My level of stress was insanely high. I was still trying to max it out, doing crazy workouts and fasting and all this other stuff, because I thought it would give me all these edges. When I eliminated fasting, I just ate like a normal human being and ate three times a day. I minimized my workouts and I started doing more gymnastic stuff instead of really hard, intense strength training workouts. I felt incredible. I felt like I adapted is extremely quick to my environment, whether if if I I was trying to push the stress level on the stuff, um, on and on and on, I think that it would have been a rough, rough year for me. And I probably wouldn't be able to have this conversation right now. And so I think that looking at, um, fasting as a stress, and if you can handle that and you don't, you you feel like you're at kind of like a a good baseline level of nutrition and health. Okay. Now we can talk about adding fasting in. So that's, I want to get that out of the way where people do not understand that, you know, they they may be eating like crap and they're not, they don't really have you know, any type of sleep in control, they don't have meditation going on, they don't have stress management going on, and they start adding in and fasting. I, I just don't think it's a it's a good tool to use at that point in time. However, if you have all that stuff dialed in, I think it can be an effective tool for a lot of different reasons. Um, I feel generally, and why I do it, is that, so the way I approach it in intermittent fasting is that I just generally do not eat if I'm not hungry, and I eat when I'm hungry. Because I'm on a ketogenic diet, that looks like one to two meals a day, generally, um, and so then I just if I wake up and I'm not hungry, maybe I had a, a really fatty dinner the night before. I just do not eat until I'm hungry. Um, a lot of that time is extended be uh, because I work really intensely and I get kind of into into the zone and just kind of forget to eat, which is uh, a side effect of a ketogenic diet as well. Um, that's how I approach it generally. Um, as far as uh, extended fasts, I try to get at least two to three five to seven day fasts per year. There's just there's too much evidence out there suggesting the benefits of long-term fasts um, regarding clearance of old cells, um, increase in mitochondrial biogenesis, um, just, you know, resetting of hormones, all this different stuff. And the downside to me is nothing. The downside is just you don't have mouth pleasure for five to seven days. Like you, you just mess up on food for five to seven days. If, if I had even potential benefits long-term from a, a downside of essentially nothing, I'm gonna take that risk a couple of times a year and not flinch at it. I've, I've done it a few times now. It's really not the big of a deal for me. And so that's why I tried to sneak that in. Um, when we're looking at intermittent fasting, which is generally people you know eat less in one day and then they eat and they eat less in the next day, um, you just don't get the same amount of benefits if you were to restrict um, fasting for a long period of time. And so I like to think about it instead of intermittent fasting and fasting, I think like to think about it as time-restricted feeding or eating versus fasting. So fasting I think is longer term. We actually start kicking on um, autophagy and you're looking at maybe an extended two, three, four, five, seven day fast rather than uh, intermittent um, fasting which I think should be just time-restricted eating or time-restricted feeding um, which a lot of great people are doing a lot of research on. There's still a lot of benefits there but I don't think it's the same thing as actual fasting over a long period of time. Um, and this is something too where I mean, I could rant about <laughs> fasting for a, a long period of time because I get so many questions about it but And one of the the other larger issues is that people ask, okay, well, what breaks my fast? Well, what's breaking my fast? Can I have this? Can I have that? Can I have that? Fasting is not eating. And if you eat anything, (laughs) then you are breaking that fast. Like, Sure, there are some wild cards in there. Yeah, you can have non-caloric things like coffee and tea. There's some evidence if you're using fasting. For example, I just travel time zones a bunch. um, If I wanted to to kind of reset my body with a um, circadian rhythm fast, then I would do that. And I would not have anything no matter what it is. And I would just do water only. But as far as breaking a fast with coffee or tea or anything non-caloric, not a big deal. If you're going to use exogenous ketones, again, I think not a big deal. Because if you're already in a fast, you're going to be using that as an energy source either anyway. And it's a bioidentical source as what you're going to be getting from your fat cells. Um, And so I don't think that's an issue. But pretty much anything else, okay, if you're over like 30 to 50 calories in an hour in a day, then I don't think that that's fasting. And, and that's something where I think people are going really confused because they see, you know, bulletproof coffee over here, ketogenic, this or that, and fat still increases insulin. Fat is all, is a uh, macronutrient and your body has to metabolize it and it shifts a lot of different hunger signals on and off. And so I think that if you're having a big fat bomb and having a fat coffee and all that stuff that, that is just not fasting. And so I think that if it's a non-caloric thing or exogenous ketones, you can bucket it over in one side and say like, okay, continue your fast. And the other side, I would say that just just don't eat or consume anything else besides uh, water or again, non-caloric beverages. So maybe I kind of took that off <laughs> off tangent, but that's kind of my, my 10,000 foot view on fasting.
1: Yeah, I'm right there with you. My husband and I do um, a five or seven day fast pretty much every quarter. Just like you said, the research is so strong and undeniable. Plus, people have done this historically. Every major religion has fasting in some way, and people just couldn't eat sometimes. Um, And it's really fascinating what the research is showing. And like you said, there's very little downside unless you have, obviously, a medical condition that would prevent it or talk to your doctor, pregnant women should not fast. The logical things like that. Um, What about fasting mimicking diets? Because these have come on the scene. I know Dr. Walter Longo talks about this and he's incredibly smart. I have a lot of respect for his work. Um, But I also have doubts about if fasting mimicking diets are actually as effective as fasting just because I'm with you and if I'm fasting, it's water. Um, If I'm time-restricted eating, I might drink black coffee once in a while. But if I'm pure fasting, it's just water for me. So I'm curious, have you run into any research on? fasting mimicking diets and how those work?
0: Well, the whole reason Voltaire uh, is doing that stuff is to increase maintenance in, in compliance with fasting in general. And I think that the biggest thing you can do to increase compliance with fasting is to get somebody in a ketogenic state before they start fasting. I've done fasts before where I went from eating even moderate to low carbohydrates into fasting and it was miserable. Like, I'm talking like I was rolling around to the floor crying close, close to it at least um, after a day or two However, when I am in deep ketosis and I'm in that for like a, probably roughly a week beforehand, uh, it's, it's really not that big of a deal because your body is so used to using your own body fat for fuel. And so I think that just looking at that and saying, okay, why are we doing fasting, mimicking diets in the first place? Okay. If it's to increase compliance, what well, are there any other ways to get there? And I think that using a ketogenic diet is a really, really good tool to do that. And so then I think that you look at it again, uh, other side of the coin, like, well, why are we doing a, a fasting, mimicking diet? Um, th- there's no research that says eating a little bit of food is better than eating no food when it comes to fasting. Like we, we have no evidence that says that, um, I would, I also am not a huge fan of his macronutrient ratio and in general, his composition of his new long or, or whatever that's called his, his trademark or patented formula of bars and stuff like that. It's just, again, not real food. So if, if you're going to eat 500 to 700 calories of, of food, which is the fasting and diet could okay, take t- take a step back What people don't, that might not know what it is, it's just you know, eating only 500 to 700 calories of food. And he has a very special ratio that he's put out as far as micronutrients. He sells products based upon what he thinks that ratio is. And I just, I've worked people who have done kind of modified fasts before. I've done modified fasts before. And I would not recommend that because it's not really a ketogenic ratio. Again, going into a fast without being in ketosis is miserable. So why would you go through a fast not being in ketosis? It doesn't make sense to me. Um, And I think that if you're going to do a, modified fast at all, I think it would be a protein sparing, uh, modifying fast where you're basically only eating lean protein and only getting that as a macronutrient, um, as to save a lot of lean body mass. Um, just anecdotally, again, this is N equals one. So I don't feel to think that this is a hard and fast rule, but for me, I've tried fasting and I've done the experiments on myself where I've done a water fast and I've done uh, kind of a protein sparing modified fast and I've done a modified fast where I eat kind of whatever I want and you know eat like small salad, small avocado, etc 500 700 calories a day um, on the water fast and a protein sparing modified fast, my lean mass my lean body mass went stayed the same or either went up after a fast and again you can ask a question like why is that the case you didn't eat any food well your body again is it's a stress to your body so your body says, okay, we had to start eating our own protein, whereas eating our own lean, lean body mass, we do not want to do that ever again. So let's make that more resilient. And then so you, when you start, you kind of had a protein um, negative balance. And so when your body eats protein, you start moving your body in certain ways. You send certain um, hormones to, to build up more muscle mass. When I was eating kind of a general um, modified fast where I, where I wasn't doing high protein, I was just doing kind of whatever, almost close to what um, Walter has showed. Um, I had actually a significant loss in lean body mass. And so that's something that me personally, I do, I wanted to preserve my lean body mass as much as humanly possible. And I have a lot of thoughts on, on the concept of the macronutrient ratios and the timing and all that. And so I, I would say try, if you're hesitant on trying a fast, because you you may think that your compliance would be low, I would do two things. First, I would start with just trying a protein sparing modified fast. So eating the same, you know, five to seven hundred calories of just protein only for a couple of days. So you do, if you've done a ketogenic diet before you want to do that, I would say switch into that and then try doing a water fast for one or two days. There's one of these things where it's very reversible. So if you want to eat and you're hungry, and you, you feel like crap, then just do it. And so you can end it at any time. And so there's very low risk of, you know, it's not like one day you're gonna be walking around feeling great. And then the next second, because your fast, you're fasting, you can drop to the floor. You're going to have a transition period and you're, you, your body's going to realize, okay, this is not working for me and let's switch it over. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think that he's, he has a lot of good research, but I think that, you know, if his research were controlled against a ketogenic diet first and then a, and a water fast or a protein sparing modified fast, that we might see some either same or better results. But again, that's just a hypothesis from my end.
1: Interesting. Yeah. And I think we're going to see more research on this too. And from my own personal anecdotal side, I've seen the same thing. I I test labs and run labs all the time just to gauge the effect of things I try. And with water fasting, all of my labs have improved and not lose lean body mass. Um, And I will say, at least from my experience, the first time seems to be the most difficult, even if you are used to getting in and out of ketosis. Um, But it seems to get easier the more your body does it. Like anything, the body gets more used to it. And now if we water fast, I'm pretty deep ketosis for sure by the second day so even if i'm not coming from a keto diet ahead of time and i'm testing like blood levels and breath acetone um but that's really really interesting and you have mentioned macros a couple times so i'd love to get your take on that because that's something that seems to go hand in hand with some of these different diets especially the keto diet right now so i'm curious uh do you think there's any merit to that and are there certain macros that you typically try to hit
0: I do not track macros and I never really have. And that's something that, you know, I tried it once. It didn't really get me to my goal faster. So I just stopped doing it. I think that with a ketogenic diet, people tend to under eat protein. I think this is one of the biggest things that is kind of a misconception about a ketogenic diet is that it should be very low in carbohydrate, low in protein and very high in fat. And I just don't think that's the case. You're just taking a lot of nutrient dense food away from your plate if you're doing that. And I think that you have a lot of problems. I think a lot of times women, when they have problems with the ketogenic diet, especially... They have plateaus, they have weight gain, they have hair loss, they have um, thyroid problems, I think is from one under eating and two under eating protein. And so I think that the way to look at it in Luis Villasinor, Rob Wolf, a lot of these guys are doing really good work in this, where you should look at it as protein is a goal. So I think that people, you know, again, this is all from Luis, but um, 0.8 grams per pound of body of lean body mass for protein is a is a minimum. And so you should not go below that. And people go below that. People are going like, 0.2 to 0.4 grams per lean lean pound of body mass. And I yeah I get Instagram messages all the time. And some people are messaging me saying like, I'm going over 23 grams of protein today. Is that okay? <laughs> um, yes, it's, it's okay. And you should probably quadruple that amount. And so that's something that I think that hitting that as a goal and then two limiting carbohydrates. And so as long as you just don't eat carbohydrates, and I mean, if you don't know carbohydrate containing food, then just track your food for a while. And you can see, you know, maybe you're not used to it. Um, And, you know, you realize an apple or an avocado or whatever is more on carbs than you you realize. So just track them for a while to see. And then after that, adding in fat as to whenever you're full, essentially. I think that that is just a really basic way to do a ketogenic diet that I think people um, get it. They overcomplicate it. And when it becomes a trend and becomes super, like you said, maybe compartmentalized, people get into certain specifics about, oh, I'm following this macronutrient calculator instead of that one. And I need to hit specifically 67 grams of protein today. And if I go over by three, then it's a bad thing. Like, I think that people confuse it way too much. And I think that, again, 100% the thing that people should be focusing on is eating real food first and nothing else. Once I get that nailed, sure, if you want to start digging into macronutrients, that's fine. Um, but w- the question I ask is, is why? Like, are you tracking what you're what are you looking for? Are you, are you just measuring macronutrients just because you think it's something you should, you should measure? And I think that people get a, pretty orthorexic about this type of stuff and get a little intense about you know needing to hit certain macronutrients. I think that people generally also overeat fat on a ketogenic diet. I think that this is something that people, again, you know, try to get fat bombs or like really crush, you know, nutrient poor fat sources over and over and over again to excess because they're fat. You know, people either told them that fat quantities don't matter on a ketogenic diet, or that they they think they don't matter and they can eat 500 grams of car of fat in a day and be totally fine. Um, that can actually lead to a lot of long term problems. And so, yeah, I, I think that tracking macros is fine if that's what keeps you honest, but I don't think it's necessary uh, one bit at all.
1: Got it. This podcast is brought to you by Kettle and Fire. You may already know that this is my go-to bone broth because it is shelf stable, it's easy to use, and it's delicious. But you may not know that Kettle and Fire just released brand new bone broth-based soups, which make it even more convenient to eat healthy on the go. Plus, they save a lot of time when you're trying to feed the whole family on a busy night, and they are delicious. They have miso, tomato, and butternut, and they're all really, really good. Plus, they have a 20-hour slow simmer process for their broth that extracts an insane amount of protein. 10 grams per serving and this creates a collagen rich broth that is great for hair and skin and nails. My favorite part is it only takes a minute to heat up any of these broths or soup on the stove and I can keep a case in my pantry so it's there anytime I need it. Right now you can save 10% by going to kettleandfire.com forward slash mama m-a-m-a. The discount is already built in so just remember that link kettleandfire.com forward slash mama this episode is brought to you by mother dirt did you know that there's a microbiome on your skin or at least there should be as the body's largest organ our skin is also the body's largest ecosystem and many modern products interfere with or deplete the natural beneficial bacteria that should be there so how do we get it back Mother Dirt's AO Plus Mist restores the good bacteria that once existed on our skin naturally, but that modern hygiene practices have wiped away. Think of it as a probiotic and prebiotic for your skin. I've been using it for years, and it is a vital part of my skincare routine. In fact, 60% of Mother Dirt AO Mist users are able to stop using deodorant altogether because the patented AOB consumes the ammonia and sweat. And 60%, 66% of users find that they can take shorter showers and cut out an average of 2.5 products from their routine. You can save 20% by going to motherdirt.com forward slash wellness mama and using the code free ship 20. Again, motherdirt.com forward slash wellnessmama and the code FREESHIP20, all caps, to save 20%. Um, What about, are there any specific considerations that you give for women specifically with keto? Because I get that question quite a bit and it seems that a certain segment of women at least do run into a point, you mentioned it a little bit, where they don't feel good on a keto diet. So, Are there special considerations for women, um, especially hormonal considerations when it comes to a keto diet?
0: Yeah, certainly. I think that the two things come from um, what I said before, which are not eating enough and not eating enough protein. And so well, I think what happens a lot of times with the ketogenic diet is that it's it's so satiating that a lot of people under eat vastly when they switch to it. And so somebody will go from eating 2500 calories a day to 1300 calories a day, and then they'll switch their protein from 150 grams a day to 30 grams a day. That is not good for for anyone's metabolism, uh, let alone a woman's metabolism. So. I think that actually under-eating protein and under-eating the amount of food total are two huge missteps that usually when 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 women shore that up, um, I haven't seen any kind of long-term effects on the ketogenic diet. Um, you know, it depends, too, what the other um, loads of stress look like in, in one's life. And so, again, it, it comes back to stress. And so, if, so if no one – if let's say it's a woman who – super stressed out. Um, she again does something like trains really, really hard and does CrossFit and this type of stuff, but then switches to a ketogenic diet and then under eats and then under eats protein. That is a is a recipe for disaster. And I think that looking at switching diets is also a stress as well on your body. So if you switch from eating high carb to low carb, your body's going to figure out a lot about how it should be working now. And so that's a huge stress and huge demand in your body. And so again, I would not recommend this to people who have a huge amount of stress at home or they're doing really crazy workouts. Pull things back a little bit and get a baseline and start kind of transitioning slowly. I think that's the best way to go forward with that.
1: Yeah. And I love that you keep bringing up stress because I think that's the easy to ignore, but super important part of health that doesn't get talked about enough. And I say that as a recovering perfectionist and super type A that for so long, I was just like, I'll just push through. I can work harder. I can do better. And at least for me, that was a big key in figuring out my own health problems was I had to learn how to sleep and I had to learn how to address stress. Um, Because even though mentally I was great, I could push through and be fine. My body wasn't feeling that. And I think- for women especially, there there are just t- typically a lot of stresses, especially for moms, that we deal with on a daily basis. So I love that you kept bringing that up first and foremost of like, don't give your body one more stressor if it's already really, really stressed. Um, and also to the pregnancy and breastfeeding side, obviously those are not times when any doctor would typically recommend that a woman be on a keto diet or certainly not a carnivore diet or anything like that. Um, but I will say, having done a lot of research on this topic, that I don't think you should specifically avoid anything other than maybe sugar while you're pregnant. But we do know that women who eat, like you said, more protein when they're pregnant and get enough healthy fats, but not extreme amounts, typically have better birth outcomes because you do need a ton of protein to grow an entire human being. So I like that you brought that point up about protein content. And I think that could be like a very big key for a lot of women is actually eating more food because for so long, the diet industry has said, eat less, move more, eat less, move more. And for women, maybe it's actually we need to eat more, especially protein and move more. But what's your take on that?
0: Yeah, I think, I think you, you nailed it. And it exactly comes back to the points that I was making before about total caloric load and um, total protein load. Like, I, I don't think that people generally need to like extreme overeat or anything like that. But I mean, times of pregnancy, things like that are obviously extenuating circumstances where I think that nutrition should be looked at a little bit differently. Again, it's a tool. And I think the tool, <laughs> like you want the tool to be building another human being. And so whatever that takes, and like you said, increasing the amount of food, increasing the amount of protein to have that buffer on that end is super important.
1: Awesome. So another question I get a lot um, with the increasing popularity of, you mentioned a little bit, exogenous ketones, um, but also different types of oils and fats, MCTs. Um, I'm curious your take on those and if they have a place in a keto diet, and if so, how to to integrate them?
0: Yeah. So exogenous ketones, first of all, I mean, uh, obviously I'm biased. So full disclosure, I have a company that we offer exogenous ketones. lot of people uh, hate on me for promoting them when I have something like that. Like, like of course, of course, I I think that they're appropriate. That's why I have them as a product and that's why I want them in the world. Um, there's just so much research coming out right now. I mean, most of it is showing that even with carbohydrates, exogenous ketones. So like if you're not in a state of ketosis, but supplement with ketones, you have mental clarity boosts, you have inflammation reduction, you have anxiety reduction, you have depression reduction, you have energy improvement, you have metabolism improvement, you have insulin sensitivity boosts. Like The amount of benefits that are not coming out are just astounding. And so this is something where, again, you look at nutrition as a tool. I use a ketogenic diet as a way for me to be more mentally sharp. I um, do not use it for weight loss. I don't use it for anything else. Essentially, what I use it for is to keep yeah, I was super overweight when I was younger. I think that I I feel way better on a a low-carb diet in general, but I think that my mental performance is hands down much better on a ketogenic diet, and so that's why I use it. And so this is one of the things where people can can try them and see and get the feedback loop of, wow, a ketogenic diet might be right for me, and it might spark some interest as far as what can a ketogenic diet feel like, because people take it and they feel like, for instance, effortless energy. Um, and that's something that I think is super, super valuable. So I think that times to use that. I just flew from New York to Paris a couple of days ago and I use it on the flight because I just fasted through it and I felt hundred percent fine and my energy was super high. And when I in places when I switch time zones, I use it as far as instead of coffee and things like that to keep energy super high. Um I use it in the morning in addition or replacement of coffee to again have the the mental energy output for me super super high um, for a lot of people when they're switching into a ketogenic diet um your body doesn't really know yet that it should be switching away from carbohydrates to using fats for fuel and so it doesn't really have the same pathways that somebody who's fully keto adapted would to start y- breaking down fat for ketones to be using in your bloodstream and so when you just shoot that stuff in your bloodstream your body goes oh okay i can start using this now that sounds really good and so it starts using up those ketones and switching into a ketogenic diet a little bit faster and a little bit easier it can help subside cravings and hunger issues. With people who have metabolic issues. Um, I just think there's tons of uses for it. Do I think it's 100% necessary? Absolutely not. This is something that's not real food. I think that things that are not real food are just not 100% necessary. But I think that can be helpful. Yes, 100% it can be helpful. Um, same goes for MCT oils and things like that. And so, think about BHB, which is beta hydroxybutyrate, which is a ketone body that's what you get from exogenous ketones. MCT oil, which is medium chain triglycerides, are essentially the the precursors to beta-hydroxybutyrate or to ketones. And so, think about it if you look at it on a graph, that exogenous ketones basically provide you with immediate and intense energy, huge spike. MCT oil and MCT oil powder, what that does is it provides you with a a more long-lasting kind of of the same effect. And so, you're getting a lot of the same types of energy boosts, you're getting a lot of the same types of metabolic differences, and that's where the benefit from that comes. Again, do I think it's 100% necessary? Nope. I think that real food, hands down, is what is necessary and 100% required. I think that these are things, again, look at what they say on the package. They're, they are a supplement. They should be supplementing a real food, whole food diet and not replacing anything. I, I don't think they should be replacing anything. I don't think that they are 100% necessary, but I think they are extremely helpful and extremely additive. And so, again, when we're talking about you know the fasting, mimicking diet and what that does, It helps with compliance. I think that these products also drastically help with compliance of of shifting somebody from a carbohydrate-rich diet into a ketogenic state. And so I think that switching that over and maintaining energy status and feeling really, really great, they can be very, very helpful in that regard.
1: Got it. That was a great synopsis. And a question I love to ask as we get close to wrapping up, you've already mentioned several books, and I've added them to my reading list. But I love to ask if there's a book that has had a really big impact on you personally, or that you like to recommend?
0: Oh, wow. I think that that's a tough question to answer. Because I think that a book like, I mean, I don't know if you've heard the quote, like you never read this, the same book twice. I think that they're so, so personal and timing is really so relevant. I think that if I had never read 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss when I first moved to San Francisco six years ago, I would have not been doing what I'm doing now. So I think as far as sheer influence, um, that is that is one of the main ones um, for me. I think that recently, I think in the last couple of years, just as far as thinking about how My Place in Life, uh, 12, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan B. Peterson is is probably high up there and is, is, is a close second.
1: That is a good one. And lastly, if there's a piece of advice that you could give Uh, to to a lot of people, especially to everyone listening. I know we've talked about a lot of topics, um, but I'm curious if there's advice that you could impart, what would it be and why?
0: Yeah. I mean, if it isn't clear already, I would say eat food that spoils, eat real food, eat stuff that grows locally and is in season. And I think that as long as you nail that, you're nailing a lot in life.
1: I love it. Dr. Gustin, thank you so much for being here. I think you answered a lot of questions that I've been getting a lot recently and hopefully helped a lot of people navigate the world of keto and, and understanding all of these new Um, types of diets and when they have their place. So I really appreciate your time and being here, especially with the time difference. I'm honored that you took the time.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: And thanks to all of you for listening. And I hope to see you again next time on the Wellness Podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time. And thanks as always for listening.